I was able to get this wonderful, wonderful lady named Gladys Augustus, longtime school teacher who uh, went and saw a, uh, a great need and um, educated herself and became certified to become a alcohol counselor. Uh, if you could keep Miss Augustus in your prayers, I recently heard that she's not doing uh, so well. She may even be in hospice. I think she's pushing 90 years old. Um, but when I met her, she was lucid and helpful, and uh, and as old-fashioned as 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 you can be in that that sort of etiquette and 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 manners that people. I mean, this she, she's not World War II generation. She was closer to like the World War One generation, but just a certain way of speaking that you just don't hear anymore. So this is called Gladys Augustus, the Oracle in the Mirror. And her quote is that it's a miracle when you recognize the fact of who you are. Think of how we view ourselves, how we like to think of ourselves, how we think the world sees us. And you can get into a lot of trouble operating by thinking you're a certain way when the reality is you're not. And her point was until you know who you truly are, particularly if you're an alcoholic or an addict, you're, you're not going to get better. <clears throat> and this is a very personal story of hers along those lines. I, I had a lot of help uh, with this book. This chapter was uh, partially researched um, by a uh, local writer and musician named Peter Schmader, who is the uh, host over at the Golden West in Hamden. There's also a uh, professor of journalism here tonight, Dr. Stacy Spaulding, who um, did did uh, very deep and significant research on the chapter of uh, former delegate uh, Frank Kelly. Like many of Baltimore's pivotal figures in the treatment of alcoholism, Gladys Augustus saw hope for drunks in the Saturday morning talks of Dr. Isidore Turk. That's for whom the Turk House is named, T-U-E-R-K. I found a lot of comfort working with alcoholics, said Augustus, now 93 and living near Pimlico Racetrack. The people were sincere. A career educator with a half century of service in Baltimore City Public Schools, Augustus began doing volunteer work with alcoholics in the 1960s. I was working with children every day, she said, at her home on Winter Avenue, and I could see within the children what was happening in their homes. If any of you are educators, I'm sure you know that uh, it's not necessarily the kids who aren't that bright that have trouble. It's the kids that have trouble that have trouble. As is often the case with good deeds, one thing led to another in ways that she could not predict. In the lectures by Dr. Turk, which featured interviews with alcoholics and attended by people across the spectrum of society, Augustus began to emphasize with the alcoholic while taking a hard look at her own drinking. I think it was the despair that attracted me, she said, particularly the hopelessness of men who had had families and lost them. While at the Baltimore City Health Department, Augustus, along with the late Reverend Harry Shelley, trained a sober alcoholic named Walter Criddle to become an alcohol counselor. Criddle would be chosen to help get Maryland's first state-sponsored rehab for indigent alcoholics off the ground, and the Turk House was born at 106 North Green Street. Augustus became the first president of the board of directors. When Dr. Turk asked me why I was coming to his lectures, I told him 
that he listened and he never labeled me an alcoholic. I guess he decided that I would figure it out for myself. Again, self-knowledge leads to the new life. And I did, said Augustus. I found out for myself. She was born on the Fort Lee Army base in Hopewell, Virginia, the daughter of a military man. And she arrived in Baltimore as a four-year-old, starting school in 1924 when Democrat Harold W. Jackson was the mayor of Baltimore. The family ran a restaurant called The Greenleaf in the 900 block of Pennsylvania Avenue, just west of downtown. On the west side, she said, in the jazz age of Coolidge and Prohibition, her Aunt Fanny was a bootlegger of some renown. And though she was just a kid, young Gladys knew all about what was going on. Down the path from the back of the church, she recalled, back in the woods, that's where they made the liquor. In time, Gladys was, as she said, tippling. And before long, she was drinking like a grown woman. We think we're drinking socially, but we don't really know how we're drinking, she said. She came to a liberating conclusion about herself more than 40 years ago on a New Year's Day. The first day of the year was an annual open house at Gladys's home from breakfast to beyond midnight, and she tended to get a running start on the party while cooking in the morning. I'd been cooking and drinking. When I went into the bathroom, I fell over into the tub. My nephew started calling me, and he couldn't get me the answer. He had to come out and find me, and he dragged me out of the tub drunk. It was early in the day, and Augustus was not yet properly dressed to entertain. Alone in the kitchen, making food and sipping enough to black out in the bathtub led her to an epiphany. She was not the sophisticated drinker she fancied herself. I mean, it's a funny thing, what makes people think that they're social drinkers, she said. I had the whole family coming, and I'd started drinking early, telling myself I had only started in the afternoon, but that was a lie. Augustus sought out the Saturday Turk lectures, led there by a friend in the health department, Trudy Kirkley, wife of former Sun Papers TV and movie critic Donald Kirkley. Like many baffled by their relationship to alcohol, Augustus thought she might learn from secrets from Dr. Turk. Many alcoholics think they will learn to drink like normal people. I'd reached a point that I needed to be at those lectures, she said. People reach conclusions, and I reached mine. My mind was clear enough for me to do that, but not everyone gets a chance to be that clear. We learned more about mental health than we knew. It was as much about mental health as it was about Alcoholics Anonymous. Dr. Turk influenced a lot of people who didn't know they were interested in recovery. It was amazing the number of people who came who knew nothing and then became interested in this new way to live. Augustus and Dr. Turk, himself a one-time city school teacher, became friends. That friendship would influence countless others by way of the Turk house. Impressed with her intelligence and her courage, Dr. Turk remained recommended Augustus for a spot on the Turk House board, which she led for about a year. Gladys Augustus is a 1935 graduate of Frederick Douglass High School, alma mater of Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. One of just two secondary schools in Baltimore for African Americans at that time, the campus was located at Calhoun and Baker Streets in the early years of the Depression. She received a teaching degree from Coppin Normal School in 1938 when it was on Mount Street, and in 1951, she earned a master's degree in fine arts from New York University. Augustus has been married twice. 
the first lasting less than six months, was to a fellow heavy drinker prone to violence. Bristling at the idea that anyone might try to control her, Augustus left. After she became sober, they became friends later in life. The second marriage spanned an era after Augustus put down the bottle. She was married to a bus driver, and they shared many happy years together. Though she has outlived most of her contemporaries, she enjoys the love of an extended family and many friends and regularly volunteers at the free food pantry operated by the Macedonia Baptist Church on West Lafayette Avenue. Now in her 10th decade, having been born at the end of the First World War, Augustus struggles to remember names and dates. The price of old age frustrates her, but her memories of what it was like to be on the cusp of a new age in the treatment of alcoholism are as flesh as the flower in her lapel at Sunday morning services. Those were the days, those 106 North Green Street days, when people were struggling, she said. Now Turk House has got plenty of money, or so it seems. Maybe so, maybe not. Thank you. Before I uh, take some questions uh, from the floor, I would like to introduce Phil Laubner, who was the photographer uh, for this project, took all of the full-page portraits, and, and Phil's going to say a few words about his end of the, uh, of, uh, of the book. Hi, I'm Phil Laubner, and um, I'm not used to talking in front of crowds. And uh, this is the second uh, book signing. The first one was a private one. And uh, it's always, it's, I think this is the second time I've gone after you speaking. And that's, that's not a really comfortable thing to, to do. It's like, all right, let's take the author who's good with words. We'll put him up there first, and then we'll have you come up. Um, but we've been working on the book for about three years. I've um, learned a lot about photography uh, from um, Raphael is an avid um, enthusiast for photography. The first time we met, I showed him the pictures of Wendy Mater. And, uh, she's 92. She still does yoga. And uh, he had me hold the picture up. And he carries these uh, disposable cameras with him. So he took the picture of me. And he likes to send me postcards on the road. He's into writing and letters, which I really appreciate. I think that's gone. You know, that high touch, the writing and uh, I got a picture of that picture uh, back with a refrigerator magnet of me holding it. And, uh, and then some embarrassing pictures, like he likes to take pictures of me when I've got a big bunch of food in front of me and stuff, too. <laughs> but um, but I, I've, learned a, um, you know, I've, learned, I've learned a lot about my craft from this, from this project and a lot about the humility that goes into um, the people that make have made the Turk House in the past. Um, one of the people I went to see was Charles Roby, Manor Mount. He's uh, he created Manor Mount and uh, Mount, Mount, Manor. Mount Manor. I'm dyslexic, that's why I'm taking the photos. <laughs> and uh, he met Bill Wilson 50 years ago, and I said, "What was that like? That must have been amazing." And he said, uh, "And he said, well, I talked to Bill Wilson. I said, you were only sober for two years when you wrote that book." The, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, he said, how did you do that with two years? And he said, um, there was a lot of smart people around me. I just wrote down what they told me. So that shows the humi that, that humility. 
I, he's, uh, he lives with his wife, um, Charles Roby lives with his wife up in Pennsylvania, up near, um, up in, up near Frederick in the Kentucky Mountains. And uh, I went up there, and we were in, there's like a log cabin. His wife's a, a painter. It was very quaint. She made me beef stew. And um, she said, Philip, I started the first Al-Anon meeting in the state. I said, oh, my God. She goes, Philip, we're just, we're just old. <laughs> and I was like, oh, again, another symbol of the humility. These people aren't full of themselves. These people, they save a lot of lives. And so I've done um, a lot of different art shows, um, you know, been part of the art scene, but it's really gratifying for me to be able to use my photography in the, for a public service, and it's particularly for addiction and alcoholism because I know how much uh, it affects our city. I, I, think, I think the statistic in the book was we're the third largest uh, heroin consumption, was it, per... But re- really big, so it's it's it, it means it means a lot to me. So thank you for letting me speak. And uh, before I take some questions, and um, Judy, when it's time to wrap up, just give me a wave. Uh, I'd also like to uh, put a um, a plug in for our man Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, it's an honor to be in the Poe room. Um, some of you may or may not know there's a lock of Poe's hair in the uh, treasure chest here in the attic of the uh, Enoch Pratt Library downtown. But um, I hope you all know that the Poe House on Amity Street uh, needs your help. Um, there are some changes going on there. Uh, the city is looking for ways to preserve it. Uh, it w- it's been in some danger for the past year. There's probably going to be some news breaking about the Poe House in the next week or so. Um, so, you know, this is a guy who did the work, and uh, he certainly has gotten his uh, his legacy, but his actual life was, was no picnic. So um, I would be happy to answer any questions about the book, about uh, um, uh, treatment opportunities in the city of Baltimore. I, I'm not an expert, but there are people here who are. And then... Um, I'd be happy to sign some more books in the back before we call it a night. Yes. Oh, okay. Come on. Some of you guys know me well enough to ask me something embarrassing. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I'll take advantage of the opportunity. Um, my name is Coley uh, Tingela. Uh, I am a a teacher of theater for social justice and a filmmaker and also do that work with children and with Baltimore City Public Schools. And as an offshoot of that, one thing I've realized that what would improve the education of our children in this city if there would be more access or the stigma that the children's parents face who are dealing with the disease or whether it's drug addiction or alcohol addiction was changed and they would feel more open of going after treatment because that definitely impacts the ability of their children to become fully actualized and embracing of education. So I've been trying to raise funding for my third film project, 
I have one coming up on October 7th that deals with young people and bullying here at the Pratt that hopefully will be a part of changing the stigma of those who are dealing with the disease of drug addiction and alcoholism from that of being drunks and individuals who have weak moral character and will to individuals dealing with a disease. And hopefully that will change how we interact with it. There have been a lot of illnesses that had stigmas, whether it's from cancer to AIDS and HIV, and I believe it's been neglectful trying to get people to embrace addiction as an illness as opposed to a flawed character. And I'm wondering how you feel about that as well. Thank you. That's, that's a fine statement. Uh, the book um, outlines the changes in public attitudes. Maryland was the first state, and the stigma still exists. The interesting thing about alcoholism is it doesn't really care if you think it's a stigma or not. If you got it, it's taken you down. So uh, while the stigma may prevent some people from seeking help, it... it, it uh, if you if you do not seek help for whatever reason, the al the alcohol always wins. The alcohol and the drugs always win unless you do find your way into successful treatment. Um, Maryland was the first state in the United States to decriminalize alcoholism in 1968. That's why the Turk House exists, because uh, on July 1st, 1968, they passed a bill which Maryland, the very first state decriminalized alcoholism. It's, it's still a crime to be drunk and disorderly. If you're out there drunk and hurting somebody or whatever, you can get locked up. But the old days, if you were just in the gutter, passed out, they could, they could snatch you up and they throw you in the drunk tank. Anybody here old enough to remember the Andy Griffith show might remember good old Otis, you know. Um, so overnight, the cops, when the law changed, the other cool thing is the very next year, the rest of the nation, 49 states at once, also changed and followed suit and alcoholism was no longer a, a crime. Um, so the police, instead of dropping them at the station house, started taking these alcoholics, uh, for the most part alcoholics, some drug addicts at the time, to emergency rooms. And so now you had emergency rooms filled with, with, with passed out, um, blacked out, uh, troublemaking, you know, pe causing trouble alcoholics, and the uh, Hopkins and University of Maryland and I believe one other um, were like, well, what do you want us to do with them? I mean, they, they had changed the law, but they hadn't created a safety net on what to do with these folks. And that's when the first uh, budget started trickling out of Annapolis to begin taking care of these folks. The Turk House was a result of the hospitals going to the legislature and say, okay, you changed the law, now what? Um, you know, I don't know if we'll ever be completely rid of stigmas in our society, uh, but it seems to me that, um, you know, it's still a stigma to be a drunk. That's what I'll say. But it's not a stigma to be an alcoholic. And the kids, and, and, and I'm imagining some of this, but the kids who are embarrassed and cringing and maybe don't want to uh, have their friends come over the house, it's not because dad is an alcoholic. It's because dad's all buzzed up and, and, and acting, you know, and acting out. Exactly. Uh, but it's nowhere near what it was. Um, 
you know, it's a, it's a heavy stigma for women, um, alcoholic women and drug addict women, because of the role of, of, of women as mothers in society. It was always like, oh, yeah, we expect Uncle Herb to be the drunk. He falls into the Christmas tree every year, you know. But the stigma for women was almost double that. And, and we've come a fair amount. Uh, it seems to me that people who seek help aren't stigmatized. It's the people that don't that continue to suffer. Would you like to add anything to that answer, Deborah? Okay, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, it's kind of going along on the same uh, lines that the gentleman just asked, but uh, do you feel as if Baltimore City is doing enough specifically for you know drug and alcohol problems? Uh, I know I work for a program that provides HIV, well, people with HIV and, and uh, AIDS with housing, and one of the components of the program is they have to be involved in case management, which would link them to services such as this. But I would say probably about half of my tenants still still experience like heavy addiction, heavy alcohol, drug use, even though they have you know so much access to well not so much access but access to other services. Well, I think this may go back to the question asked by the gentleman before you. In, in, in the reality of, a, of, of an economy where every dollar counts and, and dollars are, are hard to come by, um, if it's, you ask the average citizen, even if they know about alcoholism and drug addiction, you know, we only have so much money. We've got police, fire, teachers, and your local addict. The addict is going to be at the bottom of that list. You know, there's still, if there is a stigma, going back to the gentleman who first asked, it's, it's, it's that... Um, you know, no one says nasty things about the relative who's dying of cancer. It's not, people still think that it's the addict's fault and the alcoholic's fault. And for as much as I've been able to learn about the subject, even I sometimes, I mean, it's hard to accept when somebody over and over and over again, why do they do this? Why does this happen? You know, the, the cancer victim isn't stealing grandma's purse. You know, you steal grandma's purse, the whole family's against you. You know, and, and then, so, no, as a, as, a, as a nation, we're not doing enough. But the pie is only so big, and uh, when push comes to shove, I think the average taxpayer would rather see. Now, the, the, the sad part is maybe some of the law enforcement budget could go to treatment, and then you would equal it out a little bit, and you wouldn't have to pay cops to lock people up if people weren't getting loaded and needing to get locked up. I mean, it, 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 a lot of it is a cat chasing its tail um, sort of a thing. But, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you have listened to the um, news in the last 24 hours about some statements that, uh, that Mitt Romney made about the 40%, 7% of us who, like, that's kind of the same attitude a lot of people have toward drug addicts. You know, screw them. Um, so in that way, it's usually the recovered addict or the recovered alcoholic that can make the most difference in that neighborhood, in that family, in that community, because I think we lack people willing to step up and say, I was that guy. Now, behind closed doors, that's how it works. But I think we lack people who are willing to step up, and not on TV. I mean, you know, family to family and say, I was that guy. Let me see if I can help him. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, my father was a classic pianist. His brother was a pianist. I tend to feel that as a result, I didn't find out about this until he was out of the world. It was taken from me. 
of it in, in, in a case like that. My brother did, however, put predisposition towards addiction. I look at tobacco, some studies have shown they're as addictive as heroin and cocaine. In New York City, about 15 years ago, there was a program strictly for tobacco use, you know, for cessation. It was an inpatient program. Is there anything on the horizon where this would be able to get as many times? You'll find someone who says, well, I've been sober now for five years with this smoking, and they've been smoking for six, or you know, they're having a couple of coffee, or whatever, whatever, for cigarette. Is there anything on the horizon that might somehow link them together and help? Well, addiction, I mean, do we have any? Dr. Clodner, do you mind answering that for me? This is Dr. George Clodner, who I am not a scientist. I am not an expert. So one, the, the, the connections between all forms of addiction, whether it be tobacco, caffeine, or heroin in our society. And yet, uh, tobacco is not uh, is not really regarded as as a legitimate problem. And it, it certainly, I, I treat a lot of alcoholics, and it's not the alcohol that kills them; it's the tobacco. And uh, there is some growing debate about whether you're truly sober if you're still smoking tobacco. So it, it's very relevant issue, but it, very controversial. But I think the the movement in the direction of treating it as a drug because it's killing more people than anything else. In this state, Carlo Di Clemente is one of the national leaders in this. You're fortunate to have him at UMBC. So that what's being done in, in Maryland, I think, is at least equal to what's being done every place else. In terms of the rest of the drugs, I, I think it, it's uh, certainly patients like to pick their drug of choice and then use other substances. But I think the, the statistics are you've got to stop all of it. If you have any doubt whether tobacco is a drug or nicotine is addictive, just drive by the office buildings during the middle of the day, and, you know, it, it looks like the kids I was in high school with sneaking behind the building. These are grown adults, and none of them look happy, and sometimes it's raining or freezing cold or whatever. So, Mr. Hargrave? Uh, Ralph, um, as site manager for Wiseman Kaplan House, uh, just recently, in the last several months, BSAS, uh, Baltimore Substance Abuse Systems has initiated a project whereby, <clears throat> pardon me, anyone coming into treatment at our facility uh, must be given a survey regarding their nicotine use. And this is filled out, and if they have um, a desire to stop and quit smoking, which we encourage, uh, we'll give them assistance in doing so. Let's take uh, one or two more. Um, this gentleman, and then I'll, I'll get to you, ma'am, and then we'll call it an evening. Good evening. Uh, my name is Bayless McLee. I'm founder and CEO of Transitional Housing Support Network. Uh, it's a consulting firm specializing in transitional and supportive housing startups. Um, and I'm also a alumni of the Turk House. Well, congratulations. So it's really an honor and a privilege. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. What did they charge you? Uh, I think I paid $10 for holding group fee. I mean, come on now. Come on, that's the Turk House. Yeah. That's the Turk House. $10 for a week of treatment. Yeah, it was great. Okay. Um, but my question is, uh, in, in the uh, uh, 
continuum care after you leave residential treatment. Uh, it's been my experience that a, a, a lot of uh, residents, once they leave treatment, uh, in most cases, uh, they return back to, uh, unfortunately, a very toxic environment, <laughs> be it mother's basement or the girlfriend's house or the friend's house and they just uh, uh, find themselves back in that, that relapse spiral. Uh, but my question is, how do you see or what do you anticipate in terms of uh, strengthening uh, supportive services and transitional services after uh, uh, the long-term treatment is, is completed. I've thought about that a lot, and, and the, um, the treatment models have changed where, you know, in the early, early days, you, they would detox you, they would, you know, um, give you uh, as much knowledge as you can and pat you on the back and, and, and say good luck. Um, that's not always enough. Um, you, you probably know better than I do. Some of these people are grown men and women, and they almost need to be adopted in terms of all the facets of life that many of us take for granted. And um, I'm, I'm talking about very simple things like, like what is a birth certificate, mm -hmm. you know, um, Yes, we need to employ these people, but, you know, we live in a society that makes you jump through a lot of hoops just to even be, uh, have a chance to go on a, a job interview. Um, are you familiar with recovery-oriented systems of care? Yeah, there's a tremendous, uh, it's been my experience uh, as a former resident, uh, now working uh, in the field of consulting, my experience that a, a, a lot of the residents that I, I interview uh, in terms of uh, placing them in transitional housing and support uh, network systems, they're the largest obstacle is finding not only a structured environment, but a structured environment that will plug them back into the required services that they need it's just the beginning. Anyone who knows anything about long-term recovery knows, yeah, why does someone who's detoxed leave the hospital and go straight to the bar? I mean, right? By the way, the questions, when I had people call me all the time, and, and they have this interest in, in starting a transitional housing program, and my first question is, what kind of support services are you going to provide? Because if you're not going to provide support services along with uh, the housing component, you're just setting the resident up for failure. Also, would you agree, and again, you probably know better than me, I think there's a lot of sharks out there trying to make money off of housing drug addicts in old row houses mm -hmm. and just taking their money and not mm -hmm. caring whether uh, they get sober or not. Mm -hmm. um, the new landlord scam is to start a, a, a recovery house, mm -hmm. you know. But the more important question is um, how much hand-holding do we have to do? Mm -hmm. 
who knows? Some, as, as you, prob- you probably know some miracles where one day they just get this thing mm-hmm. and they go on and they lead their new life. There's other people in the middle who need a certain amount of help, and then there's mm-hmm. others who just never get it. Uh, I, I guess if you come from a family, like if they all say, you know, your mama will never give up on you. That's the last one. You're, we're talking about people that don't have mamas or their mamas and their fathers are addicts themselves, you know. How long do you hold someone's hand after you've already given them probably $40,000 worth of free treatment and then maybe another three or four months? The Turk House has job programs. They're not high-end jobs, but it's something you can learn to do, landscaping, stuff like that. Um, I think the fact that society doesn't – and you can't just accept that it's a losing proposition, but the fact is it's a fatal progressive disease in which more people die, regardless of the help, than get better. Ma'am? Uh, my question is, are there any um, programs for children of alcoholics who uh, grow up in a crazy-making situation and become adult children of alcoholics? Are there any programs to help the children when they're young? I don't know if there's anything formal, but I do know that the large umbrella of the various 12-step programs that are a component of all treatment facilities, have uh, versions of Al-Anon for, um, for teens. I think even people younger than teens. Um, but that's also how it's perpetuated. Like, there are often children born into alcoholic households where that child does not grow up to drink or drug, but they, they you know, if there's an alcoholic in the room, they want to date them, you know. Um, so the same thing, the, the, the same thing. Um, you know, you don't have to use yourself to be damaged by an alcoholic or addictive household. You know, and, and the, the other thing is that it, it's not relegated. You know, the Turk House tends to see people from the poorer end of the spectrum, but alcoholism doesn't care how much money you make. I mean, there are people who grow up in families uh, where there's, good income, there's good education, there's good food in the fridge. Uh, but, you know, after dinner, Dad's locking himself in his office and, and he's having five or six and not there to help, you know, the kid with her homework or whatever. Um, let's, let's end with you, ma'am. <clears throat> A couple of things. One is, oh, thank you. Um, I've been involved uh, a little bit with a project called the Ignatian Spirituality Project. Uh, if you haven't heard of it and you'd like more information, I can tell you a little more about it. But we, uh, groups of women, take women on retreat, women in weekend spiritual retreat, and groups of men do that for men. And uh, we do four retreats a year, two for women, two for men, here in Baltimore. It's a nationwide. It's in about 16 cities now, people. And through that, I've gotten to know Marion House, which um, is a treatment model that does really follow people even for years. So I've been privileged to know some of the women of Marion House, and I know that they, they do follow them through a long way into recovery. And we see, you know, major healing is still happening. Three years, four years, five years sober. People are learning all kinds of lessons. 
Um, I wanted to ask, make one thing that maybe you could comment on, and that is when we talk about the severity of our problems in Baltimore. Now, a lot of my work has been in social justice things, and so often when we talk about Baltimore, we talk about it as a, a basket case or a really damaged place or a place full of worse problems than anybody else has and so on. And I, I, just, I was just out in Frederick, Maryland on Sunday for an event, and Frederick County has severely cut its budget to uh, any kind of social services. And the churches are trying to, like, do a little something to fill a little bit of the gap. But I often think that one reason we have so many things in Baltimore is that we have so much treatment and compassion and centers. And if you're from small town who knows where, you're going to come here because we do have the services. I just wonder if you could talk about it. I mean, are we, are we really such a damaged place, or is it that we have the variety of choices both to damage oneself but also to heal oneself? I think we have real entrenched tough problems in this city, uh, beginning with um, you know, generational poverty and, and, and job problems. Um, uh, this is a, I just spent four months in Los Angeles uh, doing work, and uh, they have uh, miles and miles. They have the biggest tent city I've ever seen in Los Angeles, a real Hooverville skid row of pup tents on sidewalks where it's permanent. It's a permanent uh, thing. It's easy to make fun of Baltimore. It's fun to make fun of Baltimore. We're, we're the ugly duckling city that we like to make fun of ourselves, you know, but our, our problems are definitely... Uh, real um, and you know if you love the town you you don't want to think we're worse than any place else but the statistics don't lie we are we you know there was a time where we ranked in certain indices at, uh, among third world numbers in terms of low birth rates and things that you use to gauge you know really desperate parts of the world but at the same time you know simultaneously we probably have more medical scientific brain power in this city than almost any other city in the world. So, you know, in the shadow of places where miracles are occurring, um, you have people dying every day. Uh, I don't think it serves any purpose to figure out if we're that bad or we're that good. Um, just try to go and, you know, you're doing, you're, you're, you're fighting, you know, the good fight. Uh, I wanted to speak to your point about the Marion House. The Marion House was started by this woman here, Sister Augusta Riley, and Sister Augusta is the vice president of the of the Turk House Board, and uh, she's a loving nun. Um, she's also fierce and knows her stuff, and you don't fool around with her, you know. Uh, and uh, and that's necessary as well, you know. Do you coddle the addict? Do you do this to the act? Who knows? We, you know, um, more will be revealed. Thank you very much.